Well, as we turn in our Bible today to James chapter 5, we're nearing the end of the book. We're going to come back next week and finish our study in James, looking at the last two verses of chapter 5. But as we've walked through the pages of this letter, we've seen that James has given us many practical ways that we're to walk in faith. James was a man who walked in faith, often on his knees. You might remember in the opening sermon, I told you that one of his nicknames was Old Camel Knees, because James knelt in prayer so much he had developed calluses on his knees. Prayer is important for us in our walk with God. It's something that James has talked to us about several times in this letter. And as he comes to the closing verses here, he comes back to this topic of prayer. He tells us in James 5.13 and following, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, many view prayer as something we do when we're desperate or we want something. But we see here in what James writes to us is that prayer is not just for when things are going bad. It's also for the good times. He tells us, if you're cheerful, in verse 13, to sing praises. The word he uses is psalms. So it's literally pray a song of praise. In Philippians 4, 6, we're told to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer is to have an attitude of gratitude in it. There was a major league pitcher, Satchel Paige, who who once said, don't pray when it rains if you don't pray when the sun shines. It's not just something that we do when we want something. It's a way that we thank God for the way he's answered our prayers. Now, some of you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, Roger, I would be happy to thank God if he would answer my prayers, but I'm still waiting to win the lottery. Now, James has already told us sometimes why God doesn't answer our prayers. Back in James 4, 3, he said, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. Another reason that our prayers are not always answered the way we want is because sometimes God has a bigger and a better plan. There's a different purpose that God has for us. We look at what the Apostle Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, he prayed, we're told, three times that God would remove a thorn in his flesh. Commentators tell us it was some type of a physical ailment that God had put in place. Paul was a man of faith. He was a man who healed others. And yet he couldn't be healed himself through his persistent prayer. And the reason for that is the text tells us God had a greater purpose. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I will give you what you need to go through this, but I want you to remain dependent. And I want you to remain humble. And so God gave him this limitation. There was an anonymous author who wrote these words. I asked for strength that I might achieve. God made me weak that I might obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. He gave me grace that I might do better things. 
I asked for riches that I might be happy. He gave me poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. He gave me weakness that I might feel a need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. He gave me life that I might enjoy all things. I received nothing that I had asked for. And he gave me all that I had hoped for. It may be that some of you, though, are sitting here this morning saying, Roger, all I'm hoping is that I can go through a single day without pain. I have chronic illness. I have chronic pain. James is addressing some of these needs. He says in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? And in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? The Greek word that he uses for sickness here means to be without strength. And it's not just limited to a physical illness that debilitates us, but it also speaks of something that could be mental or moral or spiritual. So as he talks about sickness, it's not just relegated to a physical infirmity, but it can affect the totality of who we are. It can speak of a deeper issue that is going on within us. Now, sometimes there's a connection between these two things. There are are times when a physical illness is tied to a spiritual illness, some sin in our life. When Jesus healed the paralytic at Bethsaida, he said in John 5, 14, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore that nothing worse happens to you. So Jesus is saying, your sickness, this disease I healed you from was tied to a sin. And if you go back to what you were doing before, things are going to be worse. The Bible warns us there can be a physical consequence that comes from our sin. We see that in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 31, where we're warned that when we come to the communion table, as we'll do next Sunday, that we are to come and confess our sins, that we are to come with clean hands and hearts, because it says if we approach the Lord's table in a flippant manner, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 11 says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick. And a number sleep, a word that was used to describe those who had even died because of their, their illness. First John five sixteen through 17 tells us there is a sin leading to death. Sometimes our actions, our sin can be so detrimental or so abhorrent that God has to judge us to take us from the earth so that we don't continue to do damage to his name or in some other situation. An example is found in Acts chapter 5 and verses 1 through 10. There was a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira, and they lied to the Holy Spirit about a gift they supposedly gave to God. And it says they were judged and they dropped dead right there. Now, as we talk about this, we need to understand that not all sickness or suffering is a direct result of our sin. Now, let me make sure you understand, all sickness and death in the world is because of sin ultimately. But what I'm saying is there is not always a direct cause and effect where you're you're suffering this situation because of this sin. There are times that the two uh, are not connected. We see that in John chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3. There was a man born blind. And the disciples of Jesus came to him and they said this, Who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind. And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Friends, it's bad theology to say every time somebody is sick or suffering, it is a direct result of sin. We see that in the book of Job. If you've ever read through Job, you know that Job and his family suffered calamity after calamity. And as Job's friends came and as they sat with him, uh, after a while they started to say to Job, you know... When when are you going to own up to your sin? When are you going to confess your sins? In chapters 8 and 11, they said this calamity that's come on you is a consequence of your sins or that of your family. 
Now, Job said to them in chapter 9, he agreed that it was impossible for man to be righteous because we've all sinned. But what he was saying is this is not a direct result of that. And we know it's not because in Job chapter 2, as the book was beginning, God tells us why Job and his family would go through all this stuff. Satan came along and said, hey, Job honors you and blesses you because of the way you've blessed him. And he says, I bet if you took it all away, he would curse you. And God said, well, let's find out. And he took Job through a series of testings and trials and things that were happening in his life. And as we've seen as we've gone through the book of James, one of the major themes that he's talked about all through this book is the refining process, the maturing process that God takes us as Christians through. And it may be some of you who are sitting here this morning that are going through sickness or suffering or dealing with things in your life that you're saying, I didn't cause this. It's because God is at work trying to test you. Not in a bad way. You'll recall earlier in the book of James when we had our first sermon in this series, I called it Joy in the Midst of Junk. And we talked about how the process of testing that takes place. We saw in James 1.12, he said, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, when he has been approved, literally approved, where the quality of this person has been checked, it says he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him, those who persevere, those who go through the process with him. We saw that what God does with us is he takes us through a process of this testing. It was this Greek word, hupomone, and you recall it was a compound word. Hupo means to, to be under, and meno, the, the root there, means to remain or abide. And the picture that we saw was of a weightlifter who struggles under the load, and as they continue to, to, to build a muscle through persevering, we talked about how an athlete will train and develop stamina, this patience, fortitude, steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, all these meanings of the word. It's like a backpacker who's, who's preparing for a long journey and they will increase the distance and the load they carry so when they actually go on the journey, they have the strength and stamina for the trip. And this is what God does with some of us. Sometimes the trials, the tribulations, the things you're going through are a time of testing, a time where he is preparing you, where he is proving your worth as he did with Job. Now, there are times, having said all that, that our sin is connected Uh, to the sickness that we have. You see that he tells us here uh, that we, when we're sick, he says that in verse 15, he says, and if, that's a conditional statement. So what he's saying is it could be. If you've committed sins and it's tied to your sickness, then he gives us the prescription for what we are to do. Now, as I said, we've all sinned. Ultimately, all sickness and death is tied to our sin. And there is a day coming where we will die physically if the Lord doesn't come back for us first. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. And as some people are nearing the end of their life, as they're in a case of extreme sickness, uh, this passage that we're reading in James applies. I was raised in the Catholic Church. Some of you here have been raised in the Catholic faith as well. And you know they have different sacraments, and one of the sacraments in the Catholic Church is called uh, extreme unction. And it, it is part of a group of sacraments that they give when somebody is nearing death called the last rites. Now, after Vatican II, they changed it to anointing of the sick. But what extreme unction means, unction is a big fancy word that simply means anointing. And extreme means, hey, it's a serious case. This isn't your garden variety mountain cedar illness that I'm dealing with and many of you this morning. 
This is, you know, an extreme situation where you could die. And what will happen in a case like that, the priest will show up and he will anoint the person with oil. And they draw that practice out of the passage we're looking at. And, you know, in in that case, there's also a confession of their sins to the priest. Now, what we see in this passage is confession and anointing aren't just for Catholics. It applies to all of us here today. Now, unlike in the Catholic faith, you don't have to go through a priest, nor do you have to come to me as your pastor. I'm not going to put a collar on and go in the back here and have the line of y'all come to tell me your sins. We don't have to do that. Because what the Bible tells us is we have the ability to go directly to God. 1 John 1, nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> we have the ability to go directly to God. Now, as we do so, when you see this word uh, confession, this is a word that trips a lot of people up because we think confession is just simply saying, I'm sorry. It's kind of like when you get your kids and separate them when they've been in a fight. And I say to my kids, uh, tell your sister you're sorry or your brother you're sorry. And he goes, I'm sorry. No, you're not. You know, And that's not what confession is. We don't go to God and say, I'm sorry, and we don't really mean it. You see, what the word confession is, it's the Greek word homo legeo. It's a big fancy word that's put together two words. Homo means the same. We talk about homo sapiens, homosexuals. It means the same, homo. And then legeo means to speak or to say. So homo legeo, confession, literally means to say the same thing as God says about our sin. To say the same thing as God says about our sin. And what it is, is where we recognize the severity of our sin. We recognize the damage we have done to God and our relationship with him, to ourselves, the consequences that can come, and to others as we have hurt those who are affected by our sin. And so when we confess our sins to God, you've heard another word, repentance, and that word literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It means to stop, to turn around, and go back in the other direction. So when we sin and we we repent, what it means is if we've been walking away from God toward our sin, we stop and we turn around And we go back to God. And confession is the same thing. We say the same thing as God says. This sin is wrong. And I need to stop it. And I need to walk away from my sin. And I need to walk back to God. And my relationship with him needs to be restored. Now as we're reading this passage in James, he uses the same word, homo legeo, except he adds a preposition to it. When you look at verse 16 and it tells us to confess our sins to one another, it has the preposition ex or ek, which means out. So what it means there is to admit or to confess what we've already talked about in a public manner. And now this is where some of us, oh, I don't want to do this. I'm not asking you guys to come up here and take the microphone and uh, confess your sins publicly. That's not what James is telling us. Confession is not about a public airing of our dirty laundry to titillate uh, the people who are here to say, ooh, listen to their sins. What confession is, is again the understanding that we have hurt other people by our sin. And there are times that we are to confess our sins to one another. There are times there has to be a mediation where you go to the person and you say, I am sorry. I was wrong. I hurt you. And I recognize that. Now, confession, 
uh, in this sense, this public confession is something we're going to come back and talk about next week. In verses 19 through 20, we're going to talk about how to help turn a strained saint back. So I don't want to go too deep into this process of at what level is sin confessed because we're going to talk some about that next week. So I want to move back on to what he's talking about here. The bottom line is our goal is not to get a pound of flesh. This isn't to be about retribution where you say crawl across broken glass and when I've seen you suffer enough, uh, maybe. Maybe I'll forgive you. We need to understand uh, that when we come to God, he confesses us of all unrighteousness. And when we confess to one another, there is to be the extension of that same mercy and grace. The Lord's Prayer, we pray, Father, forgive us as we've forgiven those who have sinned against us. Do you really mean that? And this is what James is telling us. The bottom line here is restoration. It's not retribution. It's about restoration. And he speaks of those who are spiritual helping in the process. In Galatians 6.1, we're told, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. In terms of those who are spiritual, that's who James is speaking of when he says to call the elders of the church. The Greek word is presbyteros. You hear about Presbyterians, it comes from this word. Or maybe you've heard of Episcopalians, that comes from episkopos, another word that speaks of these spiritual overseers of the church. And so James is speaking of the men who have been appointed as the elders, the leaders in the church. Now, it's not, uh, as you read through the qualifications there in the, what is, qualifies a, a leader, it says that they are a person of maturity. Their walk with God is deep. They are, they are men who love the Lord, who have wisdom. Now, the word elder, presbyteros, that's used, also speaks of somebody who is older. It can be used that way to speak of somebody in terms of chronology of age. We have a saying, with age comes wisdom. Now, that's not always the case, is it? You've probably met some people who are older who are pretty immature. And conversely, you can meet somebody who is younger and has great wisdom because of life experience, learning, or their walk with God. It's why Paul told Timothy, don't let anybody look down on your youth. You are a man of maturity. You are a leader, a spiritual leader as a pastor in the church. And so what James is telling us here is we are to go to those who are godly those who have maturity, those who can be a mediator in a situation like this. And it it may be the leaders of a church, which is who James is singling out here, but it could be that you're in a situation where you you have a, a need and your life group, your small group can be those who are people that can walk with you through a process or pray with you in a time of need. Your ABF can be those. There are times to call the leadership of the church. And so this is what James is calling on us to do, to seek those who are spiritual, who can uh, offer this, this help and restoration. Now, as we do so, James makes clear that the person who is sick is to be the one who initiates the request. There are times in a church discipline situation where the leaders have to go to a person in sin and say, we need to deal with this. But here James is saying, you who are sick... He uses the aorist middle form, and what that simply means is the person who initiates the request is the one who is affected by the sickness. And I think it's in view because it shows the dependence of the person as well as their willingness to do whatever it is that God is calling on them to do. Some of that is that confession and repentance. Now, as we depend on God, let me make something clear here. Because there are times that people, there are some denominational faiths that say, 
you, you can't use modern medicine, that that shows a lack of faith, that God is the only healer and that's the person you should go to. But men and women, I want to remind you that God gave us wisdom. He told us in, in Genesis, as he put the man in the earth on, the, he said to have dominion over the earth and rule over it. He gave us uh, the things for modern medicine that are discovered. And he's given people of, of gifting in the medical field the ability to use procedures and their, their, their minds and their hands as surgeons and others that are in the care field. And so God is not opposed to us using modern medicine. As a pastor, I partner with the medical community all the time in caring for our congregation. This past week, I was in three different hospitals uh, with people who were having surgeries or who were having care. And as I go into these surgery centers or into these hospital areas, uh, they will prep the person and they're in the back and they're waiting to go into surgery. And I or others on our pastoral team uh, or elders or some of you who are friends who are, are there to support somebody in prayer will go. And when I go in the back and the person's laying there, you know, on the gurney and they've got on the little compression booties and all this and you can just see the fear in their face. And, and you know, what I'll do is I'll come in and part of it is just the ministry of your presence. Just say, hey, I'm here. I want to support you. I want to pray with you. And there are times that they say to their family members, you know, could you leave? I need to talk to, to the pastor. And there may be a time where there's some personal confession where the person says, you know, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And I kind of want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm ready and right if, if I don't come through on the other side. And there are other times that they're fine. Everybody's hanging out and we're around. I was with a lady in our church this past week who had a kidney transplant. And so she's here, and her friend who's donating the kidney is in the bed next to her, and there's all the transplant and other team all around, and we're all just kind of there. And as I'm praying for the people, I'm thanking God for modern medicine. I'm thanking God for the procedures that we have. I'm thanking him for the team, oftentimes the, the surgeons and, and anesthesiologists and nurses and techs that are all around. I'll say, hey, would you like to pray with us? I'm going to pray for you for the surgery you're going to do. And some of the doctors are like, I don't want to pray with you. But many of them are like, yeah, I need that. And, you know, you'll hold their hands and you'll pray with them and you'll say, Lord, uh, make, give the surgeon skillful hands. Would you give the anesthesiologist great wisdom to know the amount of medicine and, and the right anti-nausea medicine so when they come out of surgery and you pray for the nurses and others, you say, Lord, you know, they've been up early or they're tired. Would you give them great care and compassion? And so you're praying for the team and you're thanking God for all the tools he's given us to heal with. And yet I always come around to, and Lord, we thank you that you are Jehovah Rapha. It's a Hebrew word that means the Lord who heals. It's one of the titles of God. And I say, God, you alone are the great physician. You are Jehovah Rapha. You're the God who brings healing. So would you guide the whole procedure? Would you protect the person from infection? Would you restore the person to health? Would you give the outcome that is desired here? And so there's this pairing of modern medicine with the spiritual side of things that gives care and gives comfort to the individual in this time. And that's what James is talking about. When we see the oil that is used here, it had a medicinal property to it. Oil was the medicine of the first century. We see that in Luke 10.34 where it says that he bandaged up his wounds pouring oil and wine on them. This was the medicine of the day. Now, it also had a spiritual 
aspect to it. It spoke of the consecration and it symbolized the presence of God. We see where priests were consecrated or set apart and they were anointed with oil. When kings were chosen, like when David was called in 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now, as we're talking about the oil that is used, the Greek word that is used here simply means olive oil. It's not some special oil. You know, you'll see these uh, shysters that are selling their oil that says it has my blessing, so it's magical, or it's come from the Holy Land, so it's, it's you know, this or that. <clears throat> if I ever show up to anoint you with oil, this is what I bring. And you're going, Roger, that's a medicine bottle. Is that because of the medicinal quality? No, you know what? This is practical. I used to have a really fancy thing from the Holy Land that had a little cork. And you know what I found when I put it in my pocket? It kind of leaked all over. So this is practical. And the oil in here, it comes right off the grocery store shelf. Extra virgin olive oil. It's not from the Holy Land. Because you know what? It's not the substance. It is the symbol. And so what I do is I'll dip my finger in there and I'll make the sign of the cross on the person's head often. When... Catholics do it. When the priest is doing it, they'll often anoint all the areas of the senses, the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the hands, because they say it's through these things that we, we sin. It's through the things we see and do, and so that's why there's that anointing. But again, it is not so much the substance. It is the symbolism, because what it represents is the power and presence of God. Now, as, as we're doing this, it's not the formula. It is the prayer, as you see in verse 15, it says, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If you don't have oil, you can use other things. You know, you're thinking, good, I'm going to go get some 10W40 out of the truck. And, you know, I've been in surgical areas where they say we don't want any outside. So I'll get a tube of surgical cream, and I'll use that. Again, it's just the symbol. It is the symbol of the power and presence of God. You're asking, God, would you cover this person? Would you provide the healing that this individual needs? Now, as we do this, uh, people sometimes get messed up because they say, Roger, I've done it. I did verse 15. We prayed in faith, uh, and, and the person wasn't restored. The Lord didn't raise him up. And so we say, what's, what's the problem here? The person didn't get healed, so we begin to, to doubt. Is it me? Is it my lack of faith? Is it the formula? Like I said, did I use the right oil? Did I do the right thing? Or worse, we say, maybe the problem's with God. Maybe God isn't who he said. Maybe he's really not all powerful. Maybe he really doesn't care about me. And the problem sometimes are none of the categories. It's not me, my method, or God. It could be other things. God has given us free will. And it may be that the person is not ready to yield themselves to God. They may be the one who is unwilling to turn from their sin and back to God. They may be verbalizing it, but internally their heart is not changing. Or it could be that, as we saw in James 4, 2, God has a greater plan or purpose. As Paul prayed three times, remove this limitation, this ailment I'm struggling with. God said, no, I want you to be dependent on me. I want you to depend upon the grace that I'm going to give you to walk through this situation. When it comes to a lack of faith, 
Sometimes healing still happens even when the person lacks faith. Read Mark chapter uh, 9 in verse 24. We see where the father, as Jesus comes and he's got this son who's possessed and he says, Lord, heal my son. Your disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus says, do you really believe that I can do this? And the father, in a a just brutal honesty, says in Mark 9, 24, Lord, help my unbelief. No, God, I don't have enough faith. I want to, but I'm struggling. And Jesus healed the boy anyway. Sometimes it's not a lack of faith. There's a greater purpose at work. And what we need to understand is we don't always understand what's happening. We need to understand we don't always understand what is happening. We can see things on the surface level, but we don't always see what's happening at the heart level or under the waterline inside the individual. When we read the word here in James 5.15 where it says, the prayers used will restore the one who is sick, it's the Greek word sozo. And sozo speaks not just of a physical restoration, but it has a deeper meaning of a spiritual salvation. It speaks of what is going on inside the individual. Not just the external things, it's what's happening inside the person. There was a pastor one Sunday who's at the front of his church after the service and and a woman comes up and she says, my husband is dying of cancer. And, And he's come to church with me this morning. He's over here. Could you come and pray for him? Pray that God would heal him. And this pastor goes over and he talks to the man and he lays hands on him. He's a pastor from a charismatic background. This is a true story. And, and he prays for this man, and, and he prays boldly, and Lord, would you heal the man, and we know you can do it. And he claims the promise of health for this guy and goes through this long, just bold prayer. And then the, the husband and wife leave the church. Well, a week later, the pastor gets a call. And it's this woman who had come up and asked the pastor to come over. And she said, Pastor, do you remember we were at church, and you came and you prayed for my husband? He had cancer. And the pastor hears the words, he had cancer. And he gets all excited. And he says, you said he had cancer, uh, past tense, so God healed him. And she said, well, actually he died. Now the pastor felt horrible. He, He had followed the formula. He had done everything that he believed was right. And this man died. And he tells the woman, I'm so sorry, I feel horrible. And and the wife said to him, don't feel bad. When he came to church that Sunday, he was filled with anger. He knew he was going to be dead very soon. He was only 58 years old. He wanted to see his children and his grandchildren raised. He wanted to just have a life with his wife. And and he said, here was this all-powerful God who had the ability to heal, I've been told, and yet he won't heal me. So she says he was angry, angry at God. He would lie in his bed and he would curse God. And the more his anger grew, the more miserable he was to everybody around him. She said it was an awful thing to be in his presence. But then she said, after you prayed for him, a peace and a joy came over him that we've never seen. She said the last three days have been wonderful. She said we've sung, we've laughed, we've read scripture, we've prayed together. They have been wonderful days. She said, I called to thank you for laying your hands on him and praying for healing. And then she ended with these profound words. He wasn't cured, but he was healed. 
He wasn't cured, but he was healed. James talks to us about the sozo, the restoration that can come. It could be a physical restoration. Friends, I have stood at many a bedside. I have knelt in many a place praying for God to do a miracle. And I've said to God, God, I lack faith in this, but if you would do this, you would be so glorified. I have been in back areas with teams of doctors and others that I know are all atheists or non-believers or from different religions. And I said, God, if you would do a healing and a miracle here, your name would be praised. And it's not about me. I've had people come to me and say, Roger, you healed me. You prayed for me and I was healed. At the previous church I pastored, I had to tell a woman to please quit telling everybody I healed her. She was a hairdresser, and everybody who sat in her chair, Pastor Roger over at such and such church healed me, and people were showing up, heal me. And I'm like, I don't have a power of healing. I'll pray for you, but I don't have, I'm not, I can't release it. And God is not calling on us to do that. But what he says is the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And that word effective is the Greek word energeo. If it sounds familiar, it's because we, it's where we get our English word energy. And it says when our prayer intersects God's will, it's like dropping a Mentos into a Coke, you know. And he says as those two things come together, there is energy that is released. And that is what is being talked about here. Where when we come as believers in faith and we pray and we ask God to do his work within his will, there are times we see that happen. We see that explanation that there is no medical reason for that God has done something that only he could do. And doctors and others will stand back and go, I have no answer for this. And I go, I do. But it's the same answer sometimes when the person we have prayed for passes on to be in the presence of the Lord. Paul himself said one day, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. He says, I win either way. And as believers, we need to have that understanding. Now, prayer is what turns ordinary words into powerful words that can accomplish supernatural things. That is the inner geo. And as I said, sometimes what it is is not just a physical healing, but it's at a deeper level where people are set free from the mistakes they've made as our sins are confessed and forgiven. And we're set free not from the penalty of death in the sense that we never die, but we're set free from the second death as we have the gift of eternal life. Now, as you read those words, the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You may be sitting here this morning saying, Roger, I don't feel very righteous. You know, it is a very humbling thing for me when people come forward and they will say, you're, you're a man of God, you're a righteous man. And I'm going, if you only knew how wretched I am. It's like Paul who said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? There are times I don't feel very righteous and there are times you don't either. And God has given us a solution for that. Do you remember 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm not very righteous, God says you have an opportunity right now to hit the reset button, to come to me in homo legeo, to say what I say about your sin, that it's wrong and it needs to stop. And today, God, I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to be a man or a woman in dependence on you and I'm going to live my life the way you want it to be lived. That's what we're called to do. 
Now, as he talks about this righteous man, he gives us an example in verses 17 through 18. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, remember, James was writing to a Hebrew audience. They had an awe, a background. They understood the whole story here. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're going, Roger, I've never heard of this guy, Elijah. Who is he? Well, he's found in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. He's found in other places. But this story that is being referred to begins in verse 17. In 1 Kings 16, at the end in verse 30, we're given the background for the story because there it says that there was a king by the name of Ahab who was more wicked than any before him. I encourage you to go home and read uh, these chapters beginning in 1 Kings 17 through. But what happens is there's this guy by the name of Ahab and he's a king over Israel and he's a wicked guy. Worse than anybody before him. Now, he had a wife by the name of Jezebel. Have you ever heard Jezebel? She was the queen. She was so wicked, we use her name as an adjective in our day to be a backstabbing bad person. Wouldn't you love to have that name? If there's a Jezebel here this morning, I'm sorry. But So you have Ahab and Jezebel. And this king and the queen, and they lead the nation of Israel away into sin. They say, don't follow the true God, Jehovah, Yahweh. We want you to worship the pagan god of the land called Baal. And this god, Baal, was supposed to be the god of rain and fertility and providing all this. And so they they have this system set up where they draw people away from their worship of the true god. And they're killing off those who worship Yahweh, Jehovah. And here's Elijah. He's a prophet. And he's one of those who is standing for God in the midst of the persecution. And God comes and he tells Elijah, look, go tell the king there's not going to be any rain for three and a half years. Now, when we read about Elijah praying that it wouldn't happen, remember we talked earlier about when we pray according to God's will. James talked to us about when we pray according to God's will, he hears us. Well, Elijah knew it was God's will because if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, when God was giving the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience of the law to the Jews, he said in Deuteronomy 28 and verses 12 and 23 that if God's people would turn from following him, one of the consequences would be that he would withhold the rain that was needed. So Elijah knows this is God's will. God's told him, so he prays there would be no rain. He tells the king, this is going to happen. That makes you real popular, right? So Elijah runs off into the wilderness. Now, he's out in the wilderness for a number of years. And God takes care of him while he's out there. He feeds him through ravens. There's a widow that is used. Again, go back and read the whole story and see what happens. And then things get worse and worse in the land. There's no rain. And finally, the king says, we got to find this guy. Bring him here. They search the land. They can't find him. Well, one day... God says to Elijah, time for you to go tell the king there's going to be rain. So he shows back up in front of Ahab and he says, look, there's going to be rain. But first we're going to have a showdown to show the people who the true God is. Is it Baal, this bogus God, or is it the true God, Yahweh? And he says, here's the the grudge match. Here's the death cage match we're going to have. We're going to show up on Mount Carmel. It's just going to be me. And my servant, who's going to help build the altar and prepare the sacrifice. And you bring the 850 prophets of Baal. And we're going to see uh, which God produces fire to show he's the real deal. 
So all the people of Israel gather to watch this uh, showdown happen on Mount Carmel. The prophets are there. It's not very good odds, is it? 850 to 1. But when you're talking about being on the side of the one true God, I'll take the 1 to the 850. And so Elijah stands by all day. These guys prepare their sacrifice. They're jumping around, doing all their stuff. And and Elijah's just kind of real impressed, and he's mocking them. And he says, call louder. Maybe your God's off on a journey. And they start cutting themselves. They're bleeding. And everybody's jumping around, and he keeps mocking them. He even says, you know, maybe your God's turned aside. I love the Bible. It's got all kinds of humor. What it literally reads in the Hebrew is maybe he's occupied. He's sitting on the john. Maybe your God's busy reading on the toilet. So call louder. So they jump around. They're doing all this. Well, then finally, Elijah goes, okay, enough of this. So he prepares the the sacrifice. He even says, bring water and pour it all over the sacrifice and the altar. Soak it. He was making the Thanksgiving gravy for the sacrifice, right? He, He soaks this thing. There's a trench. It fills with water. And Elijah doesn't go into all these theatrics and jumping around. He makes a simple request. Lord, show the people who you really are. Boom. Fire falls. The sacrifice is eaten. The stones are gone. The wood, all the water is licked up. And everybody goes, whoa. That's the true God. And Elisha says, yeah, now go kill the false prophets. They wipe out all 850 of them. He then goes over to the king and he says, hey, King Ahab, there's going to be rain. You better get ready. Get in your chariot so you're ready to run home and you don't get diverted by the flash flood that's coming. Because God said the rain was coming. Now, God didn't say when. Elijah, being a man of faith and prayer, says, why not now? So he drops down on his knees and he prays. And he tells the servant, go and look and see if the rain's coming. The guy goes, nope, nothing. Comes back. This happened seven times. Elijah's there on his face. It says he's got his uh, face on the ground between his knees. He's praying. Seven times the servant shows up and he says, Elijah, there's a cloud. It's the size of a man's fist. And Elijah gets up and goes to the king and he says, boom, it's coming. You better get moving. Now remember, there hasn't been a drop for three and a half years. And you get a little fist-sized cloud and you go, flash flood. But Elijah said, because God is going to do what God said, and he did. The rains came. Now, fast forward to back at the ranch. Ahab gets back to the palace where Jezebel is hanging out. He reports to her, hey, uh, Elijah killed all 850 of your pagan priest. She throws a hissy fit. That's not in the Hebrew, but that's what she does. (laughs) And she says, I'm going to kill this guy. Now, Elijah hears that she's just taken out a a death warrant on him and said, you're dead. And you would think, here is a man who has seen God work in all these different ways. He's done things, including raising a widow's son from the dead. Like I said, go back and read uh, the story. And his response, we would think, is bring it on, lady. But what does he do? 1 Kings 19 says he runs. And he hides in the wilderness. And he says, God, just kill me. Just take my life. Now, if we were God, we would say, what's wrong with you? Haven't you seen my faithfulness? Haven't you seen all that I've done with you and the people? Haven't you seen all the ways I've been at work? What's wrong with you? 
But how does God respond? As God responds with grace and mercy. And he says, Elijah, you're tired. You're worn out. You've been going at it and and you just need to rest. Here, eat something. And he gives him a meal. And he lets him lay down and he sleeps. And Elijah wakes up after a while. He feeds him again. He says, go back to sleep. He sleeps for several days as he's being fed and catching up. And he needs restoration. He's just flat worn out. That's why Elijah is a man like us. That's why James says, he's just like you. He's just like me. Because there are times that we just get worn out. And we say, God, I know all the stories. I I, I have all the history of your faithfulness in my life. I know the great things you've done. But you know what, God? I, I got nothing left. My tank is empty. I'm just wondering, where are you? Why won't you come through? And what God says is, there are times you just need to rest. You just need somebody to come alongside you and support you. You remember when Moses was in the battle and his arms grew weary and it says that they they held his arms up. And some of you just need somebody to hold your arms up. You just need somebody to come alongside you and support you and pray with you. And that's what James is telling us today. He says sometimes you need the faith of the leaders to come and pray for you. Sometimes you need somebody just to put their arm around you and say, I'm, I'm here. You can't see me, but you can feel the arm of that man or that woman that is my stand-in. That's my flesh represented with that person who's, who's loving on you right now and praying for you. And so if you're here today and you're worn out, each week we have prayer leaders that stand at the front and wait for you to come and say, we're just here to pray for you. We're here to support you. Our elders, if you have a need and you call them, they will come and anoint with oil. We go to homes. We go to hospitals. We have people come to the elder meetings. We pray for you. You have a sheet in your bulletin that is filled with the names of people who have said, I need the church praying for me. These are people who have said, I need, I need a thousand plus people holding me up in prayer, so would you put my name in the bulletin? If something happens during the week, you can call the church office. We have a pastor on call that will come and and meet you in your time of need. We have a prayer line where there are prayer warriors who pick those requests up and are praying for you. You can call that any time of the day or night and people will be praying for you. We have a group that gathers on Monday, a group of men and women who are prayer warriors that uphold the needs of this body. Every elder meeting, we start the first 30 minutes to an hour on our knees praying for the congregation. We have staff prayer on Wednesday mornings where our staff gathers together and prays for the body. Friends, if you need somebody praying for you, we are a church that believes in prayer. We are a church that will uphold you. We are a church that will stand with you. I want us to go to the Lord in prayer now. And then we're going to close with a song. And again, there will be leaders at the front who are here to pray with you after that if you have a need. But will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you know our frailties and our weakness, not just our physical needs, but, Father, our internal needs. And there are people here today, Father, who need you. 
the healing, the sozo they need, the restoration is not just physical, but it's, it's a spiritual need, one that is deep within as they need to know your son in a personal way. And I pray, Father, that today they would come to faith, that today would be the day where they confess their sins and say, God, I'm a sinner and I've been far from you, but today I'm turning to you and I want to come home. I want to be a part of the family and that they would accept that great gift of grace that you have for them. Father, there are those that are in need of other healing. Our nation is one of those. We see the the riots tearing apart places like Ferguson and other pockets in our country. And people are chanting, no justice, no peace. But Father, we know without you, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, there can be no ultimate justice or peace. And so we ask, Lord, that you would intervene and enter into those situations. And that those who have the free wills that are choosing the wrong things would yield themselves to you. Father, we pray for those who are in need of physical healing. The the list is long and the needs are great. But we know you are Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, and you are all-powerful. You are able to meet each and every need. So, Father, we ask boldly for healing for those who who are in need of that. And, Lord, if it's your will, as you did with Paul, not to remove that thorn in the flesh, not to remove the limitation then God, would you give your grace, your grace that passes all comprehension to surround these families, these individuals that need to feel you this morning. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.